0: Hello and welcome to the PLP podcast. My name is Stuart Jamieson, a barrister and the head of the civil team at Park Lane Plowden, chambers based in Leeds and Newcastle. I'm joined today, as with our last PLP podcast, by two experts, gurus in the costs field, Sean Lindley and Seamus Kelly, from Carter Burnett Costs Solicitors. We're going to be discussing today the October Costs Reforms the intermediate track and fixed recoverable costs for personal injury and clinical negligence. This is such an important topic that I am informed that our last podcast did make number one in the PLP charts, knocking the Inquest podcast off the top. That Inquest podcast is also of course recommended listening and features Leila Ben-Yunis, the head of the Inquest team at PLP in conversation with Derek Winter, the Deputy Chief Coroner england and wales but back to present matters and the detail of the reforms we are going to discuss today there was a lot going on when we met for our first podcast at the end of june and there is even more going on now for our second podcast being recorded in october 2023 so today we are going to look at the major developments since june including the clinical negligence fixed recoverable costs proposals and also the updated position on the intermediate track implementation. We are also going to look step by step at how a claim might now proceed through allocation of track and assignment of complexity with the new rules on the intermediate track, a more practical approach as to how this will work. We are then going to look at the barrister and solicitor approach to the new rules and also as to the impact that this will have on the legal market. For example, the clinical negligence fixed recoverable costs proposals indicate that this will favour larger bulk firms and create serious existential difficulties for smaller local or niche firms caught by the reforms. So Sean and Seamus, welcome back. How are you?
1: Thanks, Joe. We're both very well. We've been very busy doing a lot of training on the new FRC and just really getting our heads around it. So it's been a very interesting period recently.
2: Yes, yeah, also good. It's nice to be back here in Leeds as well, my my home city. Um, so it's always nice to to retread old ground. But yeah, as Seamus says, we've been extremely busy with these reforms and obviously a lot of developments since we last all spoke together.
0: Also, very nice that we can be in person today on the eleventh of October ahead of the Carter Burnett Annual Conference at PLP Leeds. So, Sean, let's dive right into the clinical negligence fixed recoverable costs proposals. Can you give us a quick overview?
2: Yes, I can. So, I think first thing first, just to let everyone know, the name of the new protocol is called the Lower Value Clinical Damages Protocol, or the LVCD for short. It's quite quite punchy. But if we do refer to those terms in this podcast, you'll now know what they are. Essentially, they are going to apply to clinical negligence claims with value of less than £25,000. They will be a scheme which fixes costs pre-issue only. We will see the introduction of light tracks and standard tracks, which will essentially determine the level of fixed costs you get and will bear relationship to the timing of admissions. And What we'll also see is some transitional provisions that aren't 100% clear yet because we don't have the rules, but the expectation is that they will apply based upon when the letter of notification or the letter of claim is sent.
0: Also, these are coming into force at the moment for next April, April 2024. Seamus, one point I noted is that within the LVCD, this is based upon what a case settles at, or the award that's made at trial, which is different to the nature of allocation in the court process and for the fixed recoverable costs in the intermediate track. This seems likely to cause some potential confusion,
1: yeah I, I think it will cause a lot of confusion it's it's interesting because it's it's contrary to how we've been taught to look at cases over the recent years when we look at budgeting when it came in cpr 44 look at the sums and issue so it was always about what are you fighting for now with the cases clinical negligence cases sums in issue kind of becomes slightly irrelevant if it settles for less than 25,000 pounds because ultimately that's what's going to determine or could potentially determine your fixed costs. The fixed costs that came in this month in October, they're slightly different, but you could have a case where you think it's on the intermediate track or it's going to be an intermediate track. It settles for £25,000 or less and what you actually recover will be less than what you were planning. So it's going to be really challenging for solicitors when you're planning out who does work how it's done, what
0: team does it, and ultimately what your revenue is going to be. So the fact that something has been allocated to the intermediate track can still be trumped by the, the provisions of the clinical negligence, fixed recoverable costs, the LVCD, which is obviously something that, that everyone has to be aware of. And Sean, are there any other eccentricities that you've picked up from the LVCD?
2: I think the two sort of main things to draw people's attention to first and foremost is that it includes protected parties so that's quite different to other fixed cost regimes for example the October reforms we know exclude protected parties so that's really interesting the other point which I think is is worth stating is that At the moment, there is a live consultation in relation to disbursements. I'll timestamp it and say that it is open until the 27th of October. I would encourage, if it is still open when this podcast is released, that people do try and respond to it because the proposals for disbursements are incredibly restrictive. One of the headline points is that there will be no pre-issue allowance for council which I think will see a real substantial change to how proceedings
0: are run at an early stage. And obviously a huge amount takes place pre-action in clinical negligence cases. One other thing I've noted in relation to the LVCD is the requirement with the letter of claim to have the core medical reports, also a schedule of loss and offer that's going to accompany those as well as up to two witness statements that's going to mean an even greater amount of work takes place in the pre-action stage. Seamus, how do you think that's going to have an impact in terms of how these cases are run and the ability to do so under the LVCD?
1: It's going to be a difficult gear shift for a lot of firms. I think that you're going to now go into a position where it will be better to front load your cases in this regard. It's going to require early assessment of the cases. Do you think it's really under 25K? And do you follow through on this protocol?
0: So a great number of ramifications for clinical negligence. Sean, what is the update on the consultation and the potential judicial review ahead of the April 2024 implementation?
2: So at the time of recording, the government response is awaited on July's consultation. That closed last month. The issues that that's most likely to address relate to the recovery of inquest costs, which is something we did pick up on in the previous podcast, and also the timing of admissions in clinical negligence cases, i.e. do those admissions need to be with the letter of response as opposed to for example in the defence the other issue in terms of the potential judicial review proceedings and where we are with those so they are stayed pending the government's response to the consultation and when we get the government's response as 3 weeks thereafter for April who are bringing the judicial review proceedings to amend or update their pleadings but I think that will most likely go ahead and deal with limbs relating to vulnerable parties and the provisions around fixed costs for those and whether those are satisfactory and also contracting out of fixed costs because the new rules appear to potentially curtail the ability of a party to contract out which is something which is newly introduced
0: under the October reforms and actually something else to bear in mind which I've read from the excellent Carter Burnett blog is that there's a possibility that these provisions could apply to live claims which are not yet subject to a letter of notification.
1: Yeah, I think that this is the the risk with the, the proposal for the sub-25k cases the LVCD. The, what we have is a government proposal or their, their their comments and they say they want to implement it from April 24, and before that implementation date, you want to have a letter of notification or letter of claim that's compliant with the protocol. Now, we don't know, will they say when we implement the rules, will they give a grace period? Will they say it's cases which the negligence accrued after October 2023, as they've done with the fixed costs that have just come in? All we can go by is what's in the consultation paper, which really just, and the response, and it just, it's saying April 24, which is really worrying because it does mean, hypothetically, there could be cases which practitioners are currently working on now, which might be caught on it. We can't say for certain if they will be, but we can't say for certain that they won't be. So it's something to be really mindful of. So if you have got cases where you're unsure, we would recommend that you really do notify the other side at least have a look at the recommendations in the government paper and just make sure you're not caught out with a case slipping through the
0: net. Sean, as we've seen in other areas of fixed recoverable costs, I suppose we should expect that there might be extensions to cover other clinical negligence cases and those of higher value over time.
2: It's really difficult to predict exactly what road we're going to go down in that respect. What we do know and what we're aware of is that there was essentially some Some stakeholders in the Department of Health were caught completely unaware by the fact that clinical negligence was going to be covered by the October reforms at all, which I think is quite quite telling in and of itself. I think the other thing in terms of where we're likely to go, I think we have to look at what Sir Rupert Jackson said in his original report, and that was that the intention was that the intermediate track would only cover clinical negligence disputes where the only issue in dispute was quantum. And if we are following Sir Rupert Jackson's recommendations to the letter, then actually that potential for creep should be fairly limited. But as as we know, you you can sort of reflect on almost 10 yearly periods, we seem to have some form of significant reform. So looking ahead in in sort of the long term, I think there is the potential that the, the fixed costs are expanded.
0: Under the LVCD, we have the light or the standard track. Sean, how would these subtracts potentially operate and what's the update in terms of those proposals within the reforms?
2: So essentially, it's going to be tied to admissions and the timing of admissions. So, what the proposals say is that where you have admissions within a binding admission, in fact, within eight weeks of the letter of claim then the claim will proceed on the light track process. That's slightly different to the standard track process. The light track process is meant to be more streamlined, it's meant to be more quicker, and the fixed costs under that are lower than what would be allowed on the standard track. There is still a tension, which is similar to the October reforms, about whether or not it requires full admissions of breach of duty and causation, or whether partial admissions is enough to take a claim onto the light track. What I would say is that the government's own report believes that of the claims that go onto the LVCD protocol, only 25% will go onto the light track. So that gives you kind of an indication of the level of claims they're anticipating will go on the light track. The other point to note is that they are concerned there may be confusion by calling it light track and standard track with the fast track and multi track and intermediate track. So they are looking at different names. Perhaps as part of
0: responses to the government, people could come up with some ideas. So these changes might occur in terms of whether or not we have these sub-tracks or do you think that the sub-tracks are here to stay?
2: I think they're definitely here to stay because the government's 100-page report sets out quite clearly the separate processes that will be followed for each case. And I think their intention is that, in their view, less complex cases should attract lower costs.
1: And just to add to that as well, looking at the wording within the proposal, it states that with regards to admissions, there is a binding admission of breach of duty and it is accepted that the breach resulted in loss, including injury. Now this is the proposal wording but it is markedly different to the wording we have in the rules for the October fixed costs which have just come in, which just requires admissions. So it's interesting because When you're dealing with clinical negligence, you could have multiple breaches and you could have some admissions. Here it is not clear exactly how this is going to be implemented and we can see confusion and it is frustrating that the wording
0: is different to what's just come in on October. Thanks Seamus. And of course, that's one of the features of the LVCD as against the intermediate track, that they do have different definitions and different exceptions and also a different treatment as to how cases are allocated depending on when they settle or how they're allocated during the court process. That leads on to another of the matters that listeners have to be aware of, which is the exceptions that apply to the LVCD. Sean, do you want to just explain briefly as to the exceptions that are currently proposed?
2: Yeah, so there's a few exemptions proposed. I think the big one is that stillbirth and neonatal death claims, and that includes claims made by secondary victims, will be exempt from the protocol. Uh, There are other exemptions, so including tied to the number of medical experts specifically reporting on breach of duty and causation. That's really important to know because it's not just the number of experts. Also where it's against two or more defendants, but where the allegations of negligence against each are materially different where limitations raised as is an issue and also interestingly litigants in person are exempt from this protocol as well
0: and what's interesting obviously is that those ex- exemptions are more restrictive than would be under the intermediate track
2: so yeah no i think you're right Stuart. it really is more restrictive than the intermediate track which for example requires two or more experts giving oral evidence at trial here we've got more than 3 Medical experts reporting on breach of duty and causation. So there's definitely a marked shift between the different regimes, and that's going to lead to confusion. And I think one thing, Seamus and I have, have noted, is that in terms of fixed costs in the clinical negligence sphere, I think clinical negligence claims have the most complicated um, arena to to navigate.
0: Thank you. And obviously, in discussing the differences between the LVCD and the intermediate track, that brings us on to. Now look at the update in terms of the intermediate track. A very broadly termed reminder, this is for claims at £25,000 to £100,000, personal injury and clinical negligence where liability and causation is admitted in terms of the clinical negligence claims and with a number of exceptions and with a cause of action which is after the 1st of October 2023. And actually I was speaking to another member of Chambers recently and Reminded that for professional negligence cases, professional negligence cases now are subject to issued claims after the 1st of October 2023 because that's different to what might apply potentially as to a cause of action which is under personal injury and clinical negligence. And this will be based broadly on allocation to track and assignment to complexity. And once that's taken place, that will provide the roadmap for the cost recovery which is to be provided On a fixed basis for those cases on the intermediate track. We identified in the previous podcast as to issues such as for fatal accidents. A consultation on the intermediate track was commenced days after our last podcast. It was very useful to have Sean's blog and the Carter Burnett output in terms of explaining and keeping up to date as to what was happening. And so Sean, what is the update for the intermediate track?
2: Well, as you've quite rightly pointed out there about your your colleague dealing with professional negligence, so the transitional provisions for the intermediate track straddle three separate categories. So we have non-PI cases, which is the issued date, which is issued on or after the 1st of October. We then have PI claims, which involve a disease element, which is where the letter of claim is sent on or after the 1st of October. And the reason why I flag those two specifically is because I am aware already, we're now at the time recording two weeks into these reforms, of Cases settling pre allocation, pre issue, where we are having to undertake and consider arguments around where would this case be allocated? What complexity band would it be on? Would it be subject to fixed costs? So these arguments for certain practitioners in certain areas are already live and are already happening. I think the other point to kind of note in terms of where we are, it's For practitioners, it's that need to get to grips with advice that's been given to clients around what costs are expected to be recovered, what costs might be recovered if that advice hasn't already been given. And we're still, I think the other big point, this is the question that I get asked routinely, we still don't have clarification around what complexity is in terms of the complexity bands. So We spoke a lot in the past about intermediate track complexity bands. If we look at Complexity Band 2, we have less complex claims, Complexity Band 3, more complex claims, and Complexity Band 4, which is presumably the most complex claims. But we have no idea how the court is going to determine What is less complex? What is more complex? What is the most
0: complex? And that is bleeding into
2: a lot of uncertainty
0: at the moment. Thank you. So let's take this step by step. We have a claim acting for the claimant. The accident has happened after the implementation date of the 1st of October. We should consider where everything is going in terms of cost spend and claim strategy at the outset. Let's say that this is a claim with a value at about £25,000 to £50,000, and which looks like it may be allocated to the intermediate track. We bring the claim by particulars of claim, and we receive a defence. With the directions questionnaires due out shortly, we now come to consider allocation to track and assignment for complexity. So the place to start then, Seamus, on allocation is as to the scope of the different tracks at CPR part 26, and for the intermediate track at CPR 26.9. Thanks, Jared. Well, actually, the,
1: the new directions questionnaire has actually just been made available. So it went online on the 6th of October, and it's something that we've studied. So really, you get your directions questionnaire. There's now under point two, you have to state which track you're falling into. So in this scenario, we're saying intermediate track. Is this agreed with the other party? Yes or no? And there's a small box then for giving the reasons why. (laughs) When we look at this form, you'll notice the boxes are all very small. So it's going to be one of these scenarios where you will say, please see attached sheet because there's no way you can justify your band, your track within the the parameters that are given. What we want to do is initially you try and agree with the defendant or the claimant, depending on which side you're sitting. You want to agree Which track is it? Is that not agreed? You have to tell the court. You also try and agree the complexity band. Is it agreed? Give your reasons, yes or no, where you feel it fits, and the court will then make a determination. Now, if the parties don't agree, there may be a hearing then to decide on the how the
0: case is allocated and assigned. Thank you, Seamus. So the next step after that will then be provisional allocation, which is under CPR twenty six point four. And a court officer will provisionally decide the track and then serve the notice of proposed allocation and the directions questionnaires will be part of that. CPR 26.14 has guidance on assignment for complexity and the information required in the directions questionnaires. CPR 26.7 states that the court shall allocate the claim to track and where applicable assign the complexity band generally when in receipt of the directions questionnaires and giving directions under CPR 26.4.10. So then under CPR 26.74 and 5, Seamus, then the court can request further information from a party or hold an allocation or assignment hearing. What kind of form do you think those hearings will take? We would expect that the hearings
1: initially are going to be quite contested. It's it's a new ground the courts are going to be walking on now. So We'll be going into court trying to explain why the case is complex or why it is not. We'll be looking at those factors under CPR 2613, which are factors including the value, the complexity, the various different issues that you'd normally expect, would be argued when you're looking at the proportionalities or CCMC's generally. And really the, the role of advocates here is going to be to try and guide the judge and help establish good examples that, other courts can use going forward as the case law builds up over time. The hearings themselves, it's difficult to know what evidence you're going to have to rely upon because you're at an early stage in the case, so really it might be extracts from reports or any statements that you hold. Maybe there'll be a statement of issues between the parties and you'll have to explain why it's particularly complex or why it falls under certain bands.
0: So for our step-by-step claim, what do we think is going to be the time estimate for this allocation or assignment hearing? and Presumably it's likely to be in person? So our understanding is that it's likely
1: these will be listed for 30 minutes. Now, if they are listed for 30 minutes, we would suggest that you contact the court and ask for a longer hearing because the first batch of fleas, first wave of fleas at least, are likely to be quite long hearings. And what you don't want to do is get into a position where the judge says, look, I don't, I don't have time. We're going to have to adjourn this. Because your costs of that hearing might not be costs that you'd recover. When we look at the actual fixed cost allowances, there is no additional allowances for an advocate to attend an allocation hearing. There's no allowance actually for a cost person to attend either, but they're going to be integral in
0: deciding this. And next we have the real sting in the tail. CPR 26.8, the test for reallocation and reassignment, which is somewhat prohibitive and a different test in each instance. So, Sean, could you explain what's to take place in terms of the actual test for reallocation and reassignment in our step-by-step claim?
2: Yes. So, it's almost split into, I've split it out into three sort of limbs. So, First of all, we've got the issue of reallocation. So that's reallocation from any of the tracks. That could be fast, intermediate, or multi track. Now, the rules define, in terms of intermediate track, that for a case to be reallocated from that, it would require exceptional reasons. Now, there's no definition of what exceptional reasons are. We don't know exactly what shape they will take. However, what is interesting is also the absence of language in the rules. So there is no defined Mechanism or rule around reallocation from the fast track or the multi-track, so this could imply that reallocation from the fast or multi-track does not actually require exceptional reasons. So perhaps a, a lower hurdle, as it were, to to succeed on that particular point. Reassignment, however, this is in terms of complexity bands, only requires a change in circumstances, which again suggests a lower hurdle than reallocation. And I think it's worth just. Pausing and reflecting on the 2021 impact assessment that was done in terms of the extension for fixed recoverable costs. Because what it highlights is that there is an expectation from the Ministry of Justice, at least, that there will be a substantial number of cases that could be moved to a different band. And they acknowledge that this will create uncertainty in terms of what costs will be allowed and could potentially be quite problematic for law firms trying to plot out what's their revenue going to be, or even a a paying party who's trying to plot out actually,
0: what's our cost risk, what are the adverse costs going to be? Thank you. So then we get our decision at the allocation or assignment hearing, and we have to, in the next step, uh, look at the costs for that reallocation or reassignment hearing. So Seamus, under CPR 45.14, we have the test for the cost consequences on reconsidering track or complexity band?
1: Yes, so this is a really, really important point. So if you have a case and it is reassigned or reallocated, then the cost consequences are that you're treated as if you were always on the new track or band. So it's retrospective to the start. So what that means in real terms is that your costs could go down, which deprives you of certainty, but also it means that they could go up, so it it works both ways. So it's going to be very important for practitioners to keep the complexity bands in mind at all times, and really reevaluate periodically, or if there's been any change in circumstances. Well, does this warrant an application? Should I be changing this to a different complexity band? Is there something more which I can explain to the court? which the court were not aware of at the last hearing, which would compel them to move this. Because if there is, then it may result in increased costs, which would be then be retrospective. So it's really interesting. The point really then is, and Sean, Sean highlights that, right? where you have the impact assessment, which says that the Ministry of Justice expect that there will be application. So you've got this tension between the government on one hand saying these things, and then... There's the will of the judiciary. So will the judiciary want the courts to be clogged up with application after application? We do not know.
2: And I think it's just worth quickly just adding on there as well, which is the cost of this application, which will vary depending on where it sits in terms of track and complexity bands, but £255 to £333. So, you know, when you're looking at the potential benefits, the cost of bringing these applications, you know, there is an argument, a cynical kind of argument in my head, which is, can can you afford not to?
1: Yeah, I'd agree. It's it's very good value, I guess, in terms of an application.
0: And what it all means is that there are huge consequences as to what decisions are made as to allocation. And CPR twenty six point thirteen has a nine point list as to the matters relevant to allocation of track. Amongst those, I suppose, value and complexity are the most obvious, and matters such as length of trial can already be determinative anyway as to what track is is going to be used. And so how important, Sean, do you think that this nine point list will be in deciding matters within the intermediate track?
2: Extremely, is it's the, it's the short and, and blunt answer to that. These are the, the factors, as you point out, that the judiciary will be focusing on when looking at not only allocation, but also looking at assignment. Of track as well. So you, you've kind of got the two limbs. You've got is fixed costs going to apply at all? And secondly, what extent of fixed costs are going to apply? And and you point out quite right there's the the kind of the factors under 2613 are very sort of similar to the factors we see for proportionality under part 44. So we do have things like the financial value of the case. So that's again just a, a real stamp here, but it, it's not. What it settles for, it's the value. Really, really kind of important. There's other bits there as well, so which I would just pick up on. For example, the the circumstances of the parties. You know, what does that mean? Does that bring vuln- vulnerability into play? And as you point out, there's some really obvious ones: the so length of trial, the amount of oral evidence, those sorts of factors, which will in, essentially impact upon allocation. And the key here is the reason why these factors are so important. Is a multi-track allocation takes you outside of fixed costs and onto time basis costs. So yeah, 2613 is going to be hugely important when we have allocation hearings and, and
0: arguments about these issues. So then we have our claim allocated to the intermediate track, and then in considering the next steps, there is also the chance that that could then be reallocated or reassigned later on. Seamus, how likely do you think that will be to happen?
1: So in terms of reallocation, it's really going to depend what case law tells us over time. I think that a lot of people are looking at the issue of reallocation much like significant developments in cost budgeting. So as you know, with cost budgeting, if you've got a cost management order, you can do a precedent t amend your budget and go to court and get that decided upon. Now, what we know from speaking with the judiciary is that precedentes are not used nearly as often as maybe they were anticipated. So it's difficult to know
0: how many of these applications will there will be. So in our step-by-step claim, the case goes on to trial and we win. Sean, where do we look now for what costs are recovered?
2: So, all of the fixed costs are detailed under practice direction 45. There's 16 tables to get through, but the most relevant one in terms of the intermediate track is table 14. That sets out the various stages. It's worth saying that those stages are not like budget phases, they're very much chronological. So, you're going to look at at what point did my case settle? Did it settle pre issue, in which case you'd be in the first stage? Did it settle? Uh, sort of at, at trial, then you're going to be looking right down at the bottom of that table to, to the final stages. There are also a number of bolt-ons that you would have to look at, which are essentially extras, so things like a specialist legal representatives. So that could be your trial advocate. It could be counsel doing certain elements of work, which may apply. So You're going to have to go through these, add them all together. Your fixed costs will be based upon a percentage of the damages or agreed settlement plus the fixed sum defined in the relevant stage, plus any additional bolt-ons, and then obviously plus disbursements on top of that as well. And for non-fixed cases, they will just simply be
0: subject to the usual
2: CPR44
0: provisions. Thank you. So moving on then from our step-by-step claim, let's look at broadly the, the approach which needs to be taken by solicitors and barristers when dealing with intermediate track cases. For solicitors, obviously, they need to be looking at early submissions on allocation and assignment. Uh, for barristers, we probably have to be flexible and work within the constraints and the requirements of the intermediate track system and where that allows for costs disbursements, and also potentially to be attending for allocation and assignment hearings, as we have the court craft and experience, hopefully to be helpful on those issues and at those hearings, first, Seamus, have you got any other thoughts as to the, the approach which is going to be needed for these claims?
1: I think that it's going to be very important to evaluate the CPR 2613 factors from the outset and really keep those under review. So this is the factors you should be considering when you're looking at complexity band and really need to consider if it's going to change. And then in terms of the actual allocation hearing, it's really important. Now, it could be dealt with on paper and you may be happy with the outcome, which is great. You won't need the allocation here, and, um, but you will have to deal with directions. If you have the allocation here, and you're there because it's not agreed. So you're going to need good representation there. The arguments are going to be driven by those CPR 2613 factors. They're in a world where they straddle both cost arguments and general litigation arguments. So it's going to be really important that you do have good representation there. The reality is, however, that the rules as they stand do not actually envisage additional fees for people to attend. That being said, there is an argument, especially in the first few months or years, that it would be a reasonable disbursement because you're really assisting the court
0: with that. Sean, is there anything you'd want to add to that?
2: I would just add two two really quick points. One is, I think, think about sort of cost efficiencies. So particularly with hearings, the obvious thing that stands out to me is, can you avoid travel? Can hearings be done remotely? I know not everyone enjoys the remote experience, but if you're not getting additional expense or time for travel, then possibly that's an easy way to to save expense. And I think the other thing is just to go back to what we were talking about earlier on in the podcast which is that disbursement consultation when we're looking at barristers fees in terms of the lower value clinical negligence disputes because there are very kind of restrictive ideas around what will and won't be allowed in terms of barrister fees. So it's obviously really important to have a specialist legal representative who can attend or who can advise, you know, in a clinical negligence case even in an early stage. So getting involved with that disbursement consultation is really important because it it may alter the course of the rules in terms of how restrictive they actually end up being.
1: Yeah, and just to add that the, the practice direction 26 says that they expect the file handler to be at the hearing or someone who has a good knowledge of the case. So that's something to bear in mind so much like a CMC you would have at the
0: moment, you need to know what's going on in the case. Thank you both very much. So now let's look at the impact on the market and on the wider bringing of claims. The report itself for the LVCD states that it will favour larger firms and could cause the end for smaller firms. Uh, But is this actually going to increase the number of claims? If we have factory type firms that don't presently operate in the clinical negligence market, and they start to bring lots of claims without the level of scrutiny, analysis, or obtaining of the vital expert reporting that that presently takes place, what will this all mean for claimants and defendants? Will defendants be able to handle a large number of claims being brought on a more rudimentary system? Uh, And could this also mean that there might be more early settlement from present experience? The NHS usually is not so commercially minded in terms of spending public money on a claim until it's satisfied that it has merit. So will there still be that interest in the merits of the claim and will it be subject to the same degree of rigour in the pre-action phase? Seamus, do you want to, to add anything to that? Well,
1: it's very interesting because ultimately the rationale behind the sub 25k reforms is that they want work to be done for less money essentially so really firms who do this work and who are experienced and skilled at it will have to change how they do the work otherwise the market will open up for as you say factory type firms who will do this work but then it's the quality of the representation then if work is done quickly and without the same regard at an established clinical negligence practitioner would already have, it's going to be very difficult for claimants. Then you could end up in a position where there's more professional negligence cases. And the other thing to note really is that whenever we look at the actual report from the government on the sub-25k reforms, they do refer to a number of factors. And Appear to not really paying them much credence, so they they refer to a poll of skill members, Society of Clinical Injury Lawyers, which says that seventy percent of firms may have to withdraw from the practice area. They also acknowledge that disabled and vulnerable people, vulnerable people, will be adversely impacted. But the government wishes to press on with these reforms. So there is this recognition that yes, this is going to or potentially be a bit of a wrecking ball to the market, but they want to press on. So really, it's up to clinical negligence firms to really adapt how they work so as to continue to survive and facilitate, but really also to provide access to justice and. The other point that I would highlight is that we've got, again, this tension between the judiciary and the government because you have the government acknowledging that it's going to affect representation, but then we have the Court of Appeal in the case of Santiago where they looked at disbursements, specifically the recovery of translator costs in fixed-cost cases, and the Court of Appeal said when you're interpreting the rules you have to look through the prism of access to justice. So you have the judiciary taking this very sensitive view looking at clients and justice but then at the same time you've got these reforms coming in on the back of a report which says yes we acknowledge that this is going to create a bit of havoc
0: but we're pressing on. And Sean do you have anything else to add on this myriad of possible domino effects for the market?
2: Yes uh, I would look at sort of the comments of Sir Geoffrey Sir Voss, and it's something which is echoed in the impact assessments done in relation to the extension of fixed recoverable costs, which essentially states that claimant firms will set costs at FRC, so fixed recoverable costs. But I think there's real question marks about, firstly, how workable that is in terms of profit margins and things like that, and you know, in terms of how do you get, uh, essentially, a setup which makes you both efficient but also preserves not just access to justice but access to quality justice. And I think it's it's interesting when we sort of look at that point of view of will claimant firms actually set costs at FRC? Because if they don't, that leads onto another domino effect, which is essentially greater expense passed on to litigants. And if litigants are paying more for legal services, that inevitably leads us down the road whereby we're going to see, I think, more solicitor-owned client challenges, and we may see an explosion in, in arguments in that area. And then that could, of course, have an impact in terms of the willingness to take on certain claims as
0: well. And Seamus, do you foresee anything else in terms of access to justice or funding models? Really, I think access to justice is
1: paramount, and it's why people become lawyers, really. And firms will, especially regional firms, will want to provide this to their communities. And as Sean says, it's going to create a a bit of a struggle or questions. Do we claim shortfalls from our clients? If so, how do we go about doing that? Which then leads on to the questions... Regarding the insurance market, so your ATE insurers, these kind of bodies, how nimble are they going to be? How accommodating are they going to be? Are they going to create new products and assist to make sure that firms can survive and that justice can be served? So, really, there's going to be a bit of a spotlight on them to see how they can assist to make sure everything keeps ticking along.
0: And, Sean, what further costs, reforms, or other implications do you think this could all lead to in the future?
2: Well, I think there's, there's two things. There's a short-term term look at things, which is in relation to the sub-25k Clin-Neg cases. I think we can see that there's obviously judicial review proceedings in relation to the October reforms. And I see no reason why there won't be similar challenges in relation to those sub-25k reforms, particularly when we consider that The reforms don't really adequately deal with vulnerable parties. We've got no detail on what's going to happen in terms of inquest costs. Presumably the contracting out provisions are going to apply in the same way to those proposals. So, I think we probably will see judicial review proceedings. What I would also couch that with though is that the judicial review proceedings we've got for the October reforms did not delay or stop those reforms coming in. So, I think we'll see. Probably inadequate rules brought in again, and then in terms of the longer term, what I think is really interesting is when we delve back into Sir Rupert Jackson's original reports, because all the reforms we have now are centered around proposals that were made, you know, years ago now. And when we look at his report, one of the sort of criticisms and one of the observations he made was that there was no effective control over pre-issue costs. And in terms of a bold long-term prediction, this is where I think the sub twenty-five k clean neg proposals are really interesting, because what that does is it actually brings in a control for pre-issue costs prospectively on multi-track cases by fixing the pre-issue element. So could that potentially creep into other areas of litigation, in particular multi-track litigation, i.e., a way to essentially control pre-issue costs and then control the post-issue costs
0: thereafter by using budgeting. Well, certainly very interesting times and uh, a lot to contemplate as to the future. Thank you so much to Sean and to Seamus. As I said at the start, there was a lot going on when we met for our first podcast. There is even more going on now for our second podcast. There will certainly continue to be huge ramifications as these reforms work through and develop. These issues remain fascinating and it has been wonderful to discuss these matters again. So thank you to Seamus and Sean. Our next podcast is planned to be with Howard Elgott, a titan of the bar and clinical negligence and professional negligence work. Howard will be sharing his wisdom in our next episode, which will be out soon and entitled, Mental Capacity, a Practical Guide. Howard has more experience than almost anyone else on issues of mental capacity which cut across all fields of personal injury and clinical negligence. And how it has been in some of the leading cases on mental capacity. So we have that to look forward to soon, but in terms of today, thank you once again to Sean and Seamus from Carter Burnett. It has been excellent to speak to you both in this two-parter on the new reforms. I hope we have provided some reassurance, insight, and practical assistance for those listening. It is goodbye from me, Stuart Jameson, and I hope you can join us again soon for our next PLP podcast.